The following clips span the last 10 months concerning the BP oil spill, though none of these clips have been heard on this show before. Now welcome to a retrospective edition of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Colbert Report, The Daily Show, The Young Turks, Ring of Fire, Countdown with Keith Olbermann, Le Show, and the Tom Hartman program with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Daily Show. Charlie, the New York Times reported on BP's long history of safety violations. It turns out they've been blowing stuff up for decades. But the company insists that safety is now job one. In fact, the CEO, Tony Hayward, recently instituted a rule preventing employees at BP from doing what? Dating Bristol Palin. That's... <laughs> the other BP. <laughs> the other safety. Listen, listen, yeah. British Petroleum is an evil BP. Bristol Palin is a kind of a fun, distracting, silly That's BP. That's true. And both involved in drilling in their own way. <laughs> All right. Yes. And, yes, but it's not Bristol's fault that the cap wasn't kept on the well. That was, <laughs> That's Levi's. No, it's nothing to do with Bristol Palin. Now, this goes back to the Grande French roast spill. What, no more coffee? Well, close. I mean, no more drinking at, at, your, at your, like your terminal and stuff? You're, you're close enough. Yeah. You're, you're not allowed to walk down the hallway carrying hot coffee. Walk down the hallway? Yes, that's what they say. <laughs> when Tony Hayward took the reins of BP in 2007, he pledged to fix the company's safety problems. And priority number one was avoiding unpleasant coffee burns. <laughs> priority number 400, not ruining the world. <laughs> So at BP, many hallways at their headquarters have a sign imploring employees not to walk and carry coffee at the same time. Workplace hot beverage-related incidents are way down. So following the success of that coffee safety plan, crews are now posting signs on all their deep water wells saying, please do not spill all the oil into the ocean. <laughs> oh, the ocean rose us away. Sixes and sevens, we live on jet planes So many faces, I don't know the names So many friends now and none of them mine Forgotten as soon as we meet what you're looking at here is footage from just about an hour ago, a mile underwater in the Gulf of Mexico, at the site of the BP oil disaster, where a new cap has just been successfully lowered onto the broken oil well. This new and improved cap is a much tighter fit than the old one, apparently. It still has to be tested and monitored for two days to see if it totally works, but if it works the way it's supposed to, BP will soon be able to capture essentially all of the leaking oil from the ruptured well. The millions of gallons that has already leaked out uh, is, of course, still out there in the Gulf, creating environmental ultra-havoc. But again, if this cap works, the continuing leak at the source will finally be under control. But while residents of the Gulf are watching the engineering response in the Gulf, watching the underground oil volcano and waiting for it to stop spewing oil so they'll know just how big a disaster they're really facing, 
The political response to the BP oil disaster inches along in Washington, D.C. The Washington Post reporting today that with Congress back from the 4th of July recess, Senate Democrats are looking to reconfigure an energy bill that, among other things, would require BP to assume full unlimited liability for damages in the Gulf of Mexico. The Washington Independent describes the new energy bill as being, quote, cobbled together from a number of existing proposals. And of course, as usual, all this legislative retooling and cobbling together will be aimed at coming up with not the best energy bill possible for the country, but the best energy bill that two or three Republicans will also vote for. And in that context, consider it instructive that the highest profile Republican campaign fund for the midterm elections was started with oil money. It's a group called American Crossroads. It's run by Karl Rove and by former Republican Party chairman Ed Gillespie. Its publicly stated goal is to raise $52 million for Republican candidates this election year. After a few hiccups here and there, the group seems to be well on its way now and is already spending millions on ads. The group's seed money, its first million dollar check, came from the president of Chief Oil and Gas in Texas. How does an oil company think it's going to benefit from a big investment in Republican candidates for this year's elections? I don't know. The mind of an oil company executive is a depth I have yet to plumb. But the Republican political response to the BP oil disaster is getting just plain weirder and weirder as time goes on. We already went through the criticizing BP is un-American comment from Senate candidate Rand Paul. We went through the this shows we need less oil industry regulation comment from Republican Senate candidate Sharon Engel. We went through the apologize to BP outburst from the top Republican on the House Energy Committee, Joe Barton. We went through the BP paying oil spill victims is a shaky down and a slush fund. We went through that accusation from not just Joe Barton, but from a whole chorus of Republicans. But even after all of that, things now are getting even weirder. Listen to what Republican Congressman Paul Brown of Georgia had to say about the BP oil disaster at a town hall event on Thursday. What we've already seen from our president is he is utilizing this crisis of this oil spill to try to promote his, his energy tax. And I've, I've had numerous people all over the district question whether his poor response to this oil spill was purposeful so that he could promote his energy tax. Now, I don't know. Yeah, President Obama and BP conspired to blow up the Deepwater Horizon oil rig and let the oil keep spewing into the Gulf of Mexico for months so they could advance their shared evil plan to tax carbon. <laughs> Congressman Brown's theory, of course, comes on the heels of this bit of extravagantly kooky paranoia from Republican congressional candidate Bill Randall from North Carolina. This is purely speculative and not based on any fact. But personally, I feel there is a possibility that there was some sort of collusion I don't know how or why, but in that situation, if you have someone from a company proposing to violate the, the safety process and then the government signing off on it, excuse me, maybe they wanted it to leak. Maybe they wanted it to leak. 
The Republican political response to the BP oil disaster now includes a variety of apologies to BP and accusations that the whole disaster was planned on purpose by BP and the evil government and the Freemasons in black helicopters with the fluoride or something. And right now, somewhere in Washington, Senate Democrats have the task of trying to put together an energy bill that will win some Republican votes in this context. Good luck with that. BP's oil started gushing into the Gulf of Mexico 101 days ago, back when the only terrifying thing rising from the bottom of the ocean was this. Release the curtain! Sadly, rescue workers were unable to save the Kraken from the oil spill. Today, the temporary cap is holding, and crews hope that the well will be killed for good by next week. But a new crisis has emerged, Jim. For 86 days, oil spewed into the Gulf, perhaps 200 million gallons of it. So where is it? Two weeks ago, skimmers picked up about 25,000 barrels of oily water in one day. Last Thursday, they picked up a total of just 200 barrels. Where is all the oil? The oil is missing. <laughs> Now, I know, I know that sounds like a good thing. Out of sight, out of Pelican, but we have to find out where it's hiding in the ecosystem. Ole, ole, oxen free. 800,000 gallons of oil leaked from a pipeline in southern Michigan. Found it. You see, evidently, the Gulf oil burrowed back down into the earth and traveled north until it burst out of a pipeline in the Kalamazoo River on Monday. And as soon as they got that capped... In the Gulf of Mexico this morning, workers are battling a new oil spill. So to sum up, we capped the Gulf leak and it popped up in Michigan. Then we capped it in Michigan and it popped up in the Gulf again. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I am afraid the oil has achieved whack-a-mole technology. <laughs> Therefore, therefore, I say, I say, we must arm our petroleum engineers with giant foam mallets. And they will whack this new leak down in Louisiana. And if it pops up again in Oregon, they'll whack it down until it pops up in Maine. And they'll just keep whacking until it pops up in a refinery. Hopefully by that time, we'll have won enough prize tickets to trade in for some biodiesel.
hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. This week, BP expanded its cleanup effort from scooping residue off of beaches to removing an even more formidable slime ball. BP's embattled CEO, Tony Hayward, will step down in October. Let it be known throughout the land that from this day forward, CEOs shall no longer be rewarded for incompetence. Outgoing CEO Tony Hayward is set to receive a year's salary and then a healthy pension worth millions. BP claims it is not a golden parachute. <laughs> no, it's of course not a golden parachute. It's just golden. <laughs> Only because BP has decided parachutes are a costly and unnecessary safety apparatus. <laughs> Before we bid adieu to Tony Howard, uh, let's hear about Tony Howard's, Hayward's storied career. He joined BP at the age of 22 as a geologist with a PhD. He explored for oil in seven countries and was soon noticed by Lord John Brown. Hayward became one of his aggressive young executives, nicknamed the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh. So he's a hero in a half shell. All right. I... No wonder he didn't have a problem with animals being exposed to toxic ooze. He probably thinks the pelicans will only experience positive ninja-based side effects. And what some may describe as a cartoonishly large appetite for pizza. But there, there is some actual good news. After unsuccessful attempts at top hat, hot tap, and junk shot, while we were away, deep sea robots successfully capped the leaking well. And so, temporary cap in place, BP can embark on the next of its ridiculously named oil stopping techniques. We're looking at early next week, they're going to attempt that static kill. Oh, snap! Static kill. That actually sounds kind of awesome, like an action DVD you might buy at a gas station. <laughs> Ernest Borgnine is Mike Static. Armand DeSante is Jimmy Kill in Static Kill. Their oil you need. I can't wait to find out what static kill means. They're going to attempt that static kill where they're going to fill the well up with, with drilling mud. Oh, so it's just cramming more down the hole. Why do you even give these different names? Still gonna take years to remove the millions of gallons of oil from the Gulf, although cleaning crews are seeing mysterious results. One thing we did not see, though, were the huge patches of black oil that sort of has become the face of this disaster out there. Right now, we're not seeing many targets for, for our skimming fleet of 780 skimmers. My God, you realize what this means? Someone has stolen our oil! <laughs> There's only two men who can get it back. Ernest Borgnine and Armand DeSante return in. Static Kill 2, oil's well that ends well. Well, at the very least, it doesn't matter in the end. At the very least, Tony Hayward is out of the oil business and we'll probably get a new guy who can help clean up the mess.
Bob Dudley will take over as CEO of BP on October 1st. Hayward is expected to take over a BP operation in Russia. Dudley used to run the Russian operation, and he was effectively booted out by the Russians. Wait, so the guy who got booted out of Russia is being sent here, and the guy who f***ed up here is being sent to Russia? <laughs> what is BP? It's like a game of musical chairs where the music never stopped, and even if it did, there's always two really nice chairs. <laughs> out that we now find out that uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, part of the government, NOAA, uh, had done best case scenarios and worst case scenarios uh, for how much uh, oil would be spilled into the Gulf during the disaster. Uh, and here's what apparently uh, the White House did according to an internal investigation. They blocked the worst case scenarios from being public. I mean, that's an old Bush trick. Right? And they're like, oh, science, interesting. Well, we like this part of the science. We don't like that part of the science. So that's eliminated. You're not allowed to make that public. Okay? Now, look, part of it, you can say, hey, I understand. They're trying to do damage control. They're in a bad spot here. People are blaming them for the spill. It's politics 101 to not panic people and say, oh, here's the worst case scenarios. That's the very generous way of looking at it. Now, but when you look at the totality of it, here's some of the issues. Like, for example, it turns out the NOAA uh, knew that we were spilling about 2.7 to 4.6 million gallons per day. Now, what did the government put out as its official estimate? Uh, they said that uh, we were spilling, let me get the exact number for you guys. Oh, yes, 210,000 gallons a day. 210,000 versus the reality of 2.7 to 4.8 million, 4.6 million. You know what that means? That means the reality was 10 to 20 times worse than what the government was telling you. Now, if the government had done the spill, I'd understand it even more, because I'd say, all right, look, they're, again, trying to cover their ass. It's not right, but it, you know, it's logical. But here, the government didn't do the spill. BP did. So, which then makes you think, why is the United States government, with a Democratic president, covering up for a multinational corporation, not even an American corporation, Who's at fault here? Why are they doing their bidding for them? And that's a question we often ask, right? Because unfortunately, the politicians here have internalized that corporations are always good and always must be protected under any circumstance. If they did a spill, then I, then I did the spill. I'm, I'm going to cover for them. Gonna, no, they're only spilling 210,000 gallons. Look away, look away, everybody. Everything's going to be all right. Look, it would have been a great opportunity for President Obama to say, hey, you see, this is why we need regulation. We don't need to overregulate, but we do need cops to come in here and say, they're not doing this right, they're not taking the right safety precautions, and look at how much oil could spill into the Gulf. You know, as much as 4.6, actually, their worst case estimate was 6.8 million gallons, right? 
so he could have used those same numbers to make a point that was progressive and that made the democratic case. Instead, he did the exact opposite, and he covered up for, I was about to say corporate America, but again, it's not America, for a multinational corporation. Why did he do that? Because unfortunately, it's in his nature. He's an establishment guy. And so when we get upset about that, you know, the people in Washington are flummoxed by it. They're like, what? You think Obama's pro-business? What? <laughs> and they're like, no, you, they're these, you crazy libs or whatever. Well, then explain this. Why are they covering for BP? Doesn't make any sense. So now they're in trouble because they were part of the cover-up. It's up for my heart when it skips a beat. A lot of comparisons have been made between the Exxon Valdez oil spill and the current Gulf of Mexico oil spill. While the two events are unique and happen under different circumstances and different ecosystems, the best way to predict the future of the Gulf Coast is to look at the past in Alaska and if history is any indication. The residents along the Gulf Coast are facing a tremendous environmental disaster followed by decades of legal battles against BP. Joining me now to talk about this is Bob Shavelson, who's been a frequent guest on our show. He's the executive director of Cook Inlet Keeper of Alaska, and he is the Cook Inlet Keeper. Welcome back, Bob. Thanks, Bobby. Pleasure to be here. Hey, um, so tell us about, you know, they're, they're, the, the Casey Calloway, who's the Mobile Bay Keeper, her estimates is that um, we could be dealing with 100,000 barrels a day from this volcano at the at the bottom of the ocean that BP created that at 42 gallons per barrel that's uh, 4.2 million barrels a day the Exxon Valdez was around 11 million barrels um, so this is this is an Exxon Valdez every three days and it's gonna go on for 90 days probably would tell us about what your experience was with with the Valdez and what the experience is up there. In many cases, the the, the fisheries in in Valdez and in Prince William Sound, in many cases, have not come back. That's true, and and what we're seeing in the Gulf with with British Petroleum is that they are reading and, and implementing the, the the Exxon playbook, and we saw that very early on. Uh, they came out right out of the gates lying about the spill volume. They continued to lie. They continued to frustrate efforts to get at that. Uh, they're covering up data. They're not protecting their workers. They're sending in lawyers and lobbyists and, and their PR hacks. And they're going to fight to the end like Exxon did on, on making payments and making these communities whole. You know, Exxon, uh, one, of the, one of their top managers, stood in front of a crowd in Cordova, which is in Prince William Sound, and told that community, we will make you whole. You have Exxon, and we do business straight. We will consider whatever it takes to keep you whole. And then the lawyers went in and fought a 20-year fight and took it up to the Supreme Court and saw a $5 billion punitive damage award reduced to $500 million. And what about the impacts on the fisheries? Well, the herring fishery in Prince William Sound is gone. 
and it collapsed uh, uh, very shortly after the spill, and, and it's completely gone. That was a very lucrative fishery, uh, so that's gone. Uh, it, it's very difficult to, to understand the changes and what you can attribute to the spill and, and what's, for example, climate change and other uh, uh, larger systemic changes. But uh, we also know that uh, there's a transient pot of orca whales that got hammered by the spill, and they certainly haven't recovered. So there were, there were fundamental uh, ecosystem changes in the Prince William Sound as a result of the Exxon spill. A lot of people are frightened that the culture of the Gulf Coast is going to be impacted by this spill and may even disappear. What happened to the communities in Prince William Sound? They're, they're absolutely devastated. Uh, the, these events, you can compare it to war, you know, and, and you have aspects of post-traumatic stress syndrome that, that linger for, for years and years. You know, I mentioned the, the town of Cordova, which is at the ground zero for the spill and, and uh, the, the base for some of the richest fisheries uh, in the world. You know, their mayor committed suicide in light of all the angst and stress and, and upheaval that uh, was associated with the Exxon Valdez. And how about the people? How about the fishing communities? The, the, the fishing communities, you know, they, they uh, employ a divide and conquer. They'll pay a lot of people. They'll, they'll pay people a lot of money to go out and clean up oil. That puts them out on the water. It puts them away from uh, the, the shore where they can organize and they can get together and they can amplify their voice. Some other people, uh, either for philosophical or other reasons, choose not to take that money, and that creates divides within the community. We had things here after the Exxon Valdez. You know, people were called spillionaires, people that made a lot of money just taking Exxon spill response jobs and going out and, and doing silly jobs and, you know, pushing buckets around or pushing booms around, and it created a lot of animosity within the community and a lot of infighting. Are there still fishing boats in Valdez today that are are picking up salmon fisheries, et cetera? Uh, yeah, I mean the, the salmon fisheries in the, in the Sound uh, are are doing fairly decently, uh, you know. But one of the most important things that came out of the Exxon Valdez is is the scientific research that was funded that showed that oil is many, many times more toxic than we previously understood. And it's not just toxic in the acute sense where, you know, you oil a bird or a fish and it, and it dies. It's, it's toxic in the chronic long-term sense. And what they showed in, in uh, Prince William Sound was that a very small amount of oil, like one part per billion, when it's introduced at the larval stage for salmon, for example, can have an effect that reduces that fish's ability to escape prey or to return to its natal stream. And so you have an overall lowering in the fitness and, and therefore a population level uh, impact from spills that can last decades. Uh, you call this a kind of war, and, uh, and you know, in, in many ways, this is an act of war. If, if a foreign enemy did this to our country, we would go to war with it. What should, how should we be handling BP? Well, I, I think the Obama administration has been handling BP with kid gloves. They're, they're allowing BP to uh, disobey orders from the EPA, for example, on dispersants. If, if Obama was going to show some leadership, he would declare a national emergency. He would require BP to, to answer to the administration on specific things, require transparency, uh, showing uh, the true volume of the spill, for example. You know, BP has tried to downplay that and say it's, it's, it's irrelevant, and they've actually gotten support from some of our administration higher-ups. And nothing can be more ludicrous than that, because if you don't know the volume of the spill, you don't know what spill response assets you need. Uh, and BP certainly wants to 
downplay the volume in the spill because it's also going to uh, minimize the damages they pay on the back end. So the, the Obama administration should declare a national emergency, get on these people if they disobey orders, start throwing people in jail. Uh, you know, NBP has a long track record of corporate criminality. Uh, you know, in Texas, uh, several years ago, their refinery explosion killed 15 people. Up here in Alaska, they had massive pipeline spills in the North Slope uh, where they're on criminal probation. Uh, you know, the, the question has to be asked, when do we take away the social license that we give these corporations to operate if they're going to willfully violate the law and kill people in the process? Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. It looks like the Gulf has completely recovered from the oil spill. The beaches are all tarball-free. President Obama swam in it. And all across the region, people are returning to their everyday lives of abject poverty. <laughs> but some scientists say there's still oil in miles-long underwater plumes that can contaminate the food chain and deplete oxygen. Excuse me, if there's oxygen underwater, why haven't I been able to breathe it? <laughs> Realistic Aquaman costume, my ass! I almost drowned! Well, thank goodness the spill got fixed in time for the Gulf's big annual event. No, not Mardi Gras. Or the day before Mardi Gras when they finished mopping up the vomit from last year's Mardi Gras. This. It was the first day of shrimp season today, and for the first time since BP oil began seeping into Louisiana waters, the shrimp boats headed back to work. Yes, it is shrimp season, and the FDA assures me that seafood from the Gulf tested below the level of concern for health risks from petroleum compounds. Below the level of concern for health risks? Mmm. My mouth is watering already. And folks, these tests are thorough. A major line of defense against oil-painted seafood starts with a sniff. You probably get a little bit of a gas taint to it, or maybe a little bit of a slight petroleum taint to it. Petroleum taint is very obvious. Our rigorous protocols enable us to detect uh, taint. That's right. Our inspectors are so good, they can find shrimp taint by smell. Do you know how hard that is? I need a jeweler's loop to even see shrimp taint. Although I pride myself on my ability to smell mothballs. <laughs> Things are looking so good in the Gulf that I don't want to hear any more about this phony crisis. Here to tell me more about this phony crisis 
Please welcome Assistant Professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Tulane University, Michael Blum. Michael Blum, thank you so much for coming along. Yes, sir. Oil's all gone, right? Oil gone. Oil that's out of sight doesn't mean that there's no risk still. In the well, maybe, 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 um, maybe it was a miracle. If only yes. Miracles happen. Jesus turned water into wine. Water to wine. Oil maybe he's just turned oil into water, and then come Mardi Gras, he'll turn it back into wine again. Yeah. So, change in form and composition, though, doesn't mean that risk is reduced. So we have oil that dissolves into water. We still have things like benzene, toluene, xylene, and arsenic. The concern is that it's going to be a human health risk. So some organisms can't We don't eat fish process. for a couple of weeks. We lay off the Gorton's fish sticks, and everything's Jim Cracky. <laughs> Right? Well, so there, there's more fish coming from the Gulf than almost anywhere else in the United States. 40% of fisheries production comes from the Gulf of Mexico. So you're asking a whole nation to stop eating fish. Where's your proof of where the oil is? Sounds like you're a nervous Nelly who just doesn't want to drink benzene. Well, so... <laughs> Uh, actually, wouldn't want to dream, drink benzene. I okay. think uh, most folks would feel the same way. We know very little about how dispersants act in the environment, particularly in depths of thousands of meters. So our state of understanding of this of the spill really lags behind some of the uh, some of the announcements that are being made. But here's what I understand: if 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 it's legal for these guys to go get the shrimp, and for us to eat the shrimp, and I would eat the Gulf shrimp. You know, I'm, I'm a fan of the shrimpers. Sh aren't they going to make money off of farming the shrimp? Certainly. So, so don't, shouldn't they give money back to BP? Uh, you have to look at the, the big Didn't they arc. get the money based on not being able to harvest that shrimp? You have to look at the big arc. So in the short Who's term, the victim here is what I'm asking. The local communities, the shrimping communities. So in the near term, certainly there are shrimp boats going out and capturing shrimp, but you have to look at it from a time year, five-year time horizon where yields are likely to be down. The communities are going to be at risk and peril because of lost economy. How long should I care? That's a tough question to yeah. answer. Give me an I need, so I need to give, ballpark me. Ballpark my, my heart. Years. years. Years? I have to care about this for years? Years. But there's going to be no footage of oil spewing from the bottom of the ocean. How can I care about something that I can't see? That's a good point to make. So the drama... The oil is the not God. No. <laughs> no, but it is the environment. It is part of nature. And the, the concerns that are being raised and really the arc of the event, we're just at the beginning of this. We're trying to figure out how long those risks are really out there. And... And we've seen 100 days plus of oil being spilled into the environment. And really, we're just passing into the phase where we're trying to recover. Do you live down there? Yes, I do. Do you eat seafood? I do. Are you going to eat this seafood now? Absolutely. Good man. Six months now since the Deepwater Horizon disaster. Eleven men killed in the explosion, hundreds of thousands affected, untold economic devastation, health repercussions, and the largest environmental catastrophe in this nation's history. So what have we learned? 
In our fourth story tonight, not much, as the government lifts its ban on deep water drilling ahead of schedule and ahead of the report pinpointing exactly what went wrong and why. Today, the joint investigation team announcing that report will be postponed until March. Bob Kavnar joins me in a moment. A deadline extension given the final report on the disaster, allowing additional time for testing and public hearing. Interior Secretary Ken Salazar announcing just last week the end to the moratorium on deep water drilling in addition to a new gold standard in regulation. Quoting him, the truth is there will always be risks associated with deep water drilling, but we have significantly, in my view, reduced those risks. Operators must now file for new permits. Rigs and drilling operations must be re-inspected. And oil and gas companies will not be allowed to resume drilling until they've come up with a plan on how to deal with emergencies. Yeah, because that worked so well the last time. To recap, BP's 2009 Gulf response plan categorized the spill as unlikely, anticipated no adverse impacts to fisheries or beaches, listed walruses among the species BP would fight to protect in the warm water Gulf, and named Professor Peter Lutz as a national wildlife expert to be consulted even though he'd been dead for four years. Only one company has filed a request to drill since the ban has been lifted. It's not been identified. Instead, oil and gas industry officials are lamenting the new regulations, saying they're delaying drilling. Salazar meeting with some of those officials yesterday in part to pitch a plan for a new offshore drilling institute. Ideally, the consortium would allow government, industry, environmentalists, and academics to all work together to advance drilling technology and promote safer techniques. The industry does not seem to be buying it, however. Jim No, the vice president of Hercules Offshore, telling the Houston Chronicle it's just another way for government to stand in the way of drilling. We're creating debating societies and blue ribbon panels with long-term goals in mind, but blue ribbon panels won't keep our workers working. The industry is experiencing a death by committee. This, as Chevron announces its plans to spend $7.5 billion to drill even deeper. The company wants to develop two Gulf of Mexico oil fields in waters 7,000 feet below the surface. That's considerably deeper than Deepwater Horizon, but with risk comes reward. The oil fields are expected to produce 170,000 barrels of oil per day, some of which might even not wind up on the beach. Joining me now is promised oil and gas industry expert, Huffington Post contributor, author of the new book, Disaster on the Horizon, High Stakes, High Risks, and the Story Behind the Deepwater Well Blowout, Bob Kavnar. It's good to see you, Bob. Good to see you too, Keith. Why even impose the moratorium that's just ended if there were not major changes in regulation planned? You know, Keith, the biggest problem here is that the Obama administration's been on, on its heels almost from the very first mm -hmm. hour. If you'll recall, they didn't even actually respond to the to the blowout, understanding how bad it was for almost a week. And I think they were just trying to scramble to get something done. They stopped all drilling to begin with and then just left the, the deep water uh, shut down while they allowed the shallow water to go forward. You wrote in the book, they, referring to BP and all the other companies that drill in the deep water, assert in every permit filing that they're able to deal with both potential blowouts and ensuing spills that right. may occur, claiming that minimal environmental damage would result. Nothing could be further from the truth. How will we know these new contingency plans will not just be another cut and paste job that lists dead scientists and walruses? Is the only verification one way or the other the next disaster? I'm afraid so. The, the, the problem here is that over the first few wells, the first few years of doing of the, under these new regulations, they'll be paying very close attention. But just like the Valdez, after several years, it'll just be more cut and paste, more mm -hmm. uh, just more paperwork on, on paperwork. I'm afraid they're not going to actually change what they're actually doing in the Gulf. What happened to the idea that, like Canada, we should have uh, the emergency wells in place uh, before any further drilling would be permitted? 
You know, the, the, the problem with having a, a standby well is that it actually doubles the risk of blowout because that well is drilling in the same environment mm -hmm. as the first well. The real answer here is to make sure the well doesn't blow out. And that's what we're not talking about here. We're not talking about control. We're not talking about systems. We're not talking about redesign of the devices that keep the well safe. Is that the idea behind the Offshore Drilling Institute, or is that whole thing just a, uh, a, a, something for public relations that pleases neither side? I, I, I think answer B. It's, yeah. just, it's just one of those things that I think everybody talking is going to help. It's, it, it, it certainly can't hurt. But remember, the industry is going to fight anything that costs more money. And so there's going to be a lot of talking, a lot of discussion, but I'm not sure it's going to translate to any action. Ken Salazar told Bloomberg News today his job is safe. Uh, yeah. Should it be? I mean, it, it, would it be a, uh, any kind of sign of, of uh, uh, increased uh, oversight or a victory for environmentalists or just people who'd like to not see waves of oil again in the Gulf if he were not to continue? You know, I, I'm not sure I'd be as confident as he is. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the agency obviously was crippled during the, the years of the Bush administration and he was way behind, but the response was so slow. Uh, in, in getting everyone geared up that I think that Salazar has some answers, uh, some questions to answer about that. Uh, the figure of the extra drilling for the uh, the deeper wells from Chevron, right. $7 billion that they're investing in that. Uh, this is an industry supposedly experiencing death by committee. They seem to be holding up well enough. This is huge money in, in this business. Huge companies, some of the largest companies in the world are the ones drilling out here. And so with these kinds of dollars at play, there's a lot of dollars that go into politicians' campaign coffers. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we're not going to have the kind of change that I think we're, we're going to really need to make it safer. Uh, so the forecast for the Gulf and other places where deep drilling is done is what? We're going to go through uh, the Deepwater Horizon again in the next decade? You know, here's the problem. Some of the new regulations require uh, a, a longer period of time for the permits to be approved. That requires congressional action. The, the interior just can't do that. So I think what's going to happen is nothing is going to happen to a lot of these rules. They're going to go back to drilling, mm. and then we're going to be at risk for it happening again. What's the uh, upshot on the whole big BP oil spill deal? The uh, Oil Spill Commission has released their final report. Did you hear about that? Yeah. Uh, this is from Chapter 5. During the spill, the governors and other state political officials participated in the response in unprecedented ways, taking decisions out of the hands of career oil spill responders. These high-level state officials... Hey, Bobby, we're much less familiar with spill response planning. When confronted with a contingency plan setting out how the federal and state governments were supposed to run an oil spill response, one high-level state official told a Coast Guard responder that he never signed it. He wasn't questioning whether the signature appeared in the document, but asserting he had not substantively reviewed the plan. 
State and local officials largely rejected the pre-spill plans, began to create their own response. Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal's advisors reportedly spent days trying to determine whether the Stafford Act or the National Contingency Plan applied. Louisiana declined to empower the officials it sent to work with federal responders inside the Unified Command, instead requiring most decisions to go through the governor's office. Coast Guard responders watched Governor Jindal and the TV cameras following him return to what appeared to be the same spot of oiled marsh day after day to complain about the inadequacy of the federal response, even though only a small amount of marsh was then oiled. When the Coast Guard sought to clean up that location, Governor Jindal refused to confirm the location. Journalists encouraged state and local officials and residents to display their anger at the federal response and offered coverage when they did. Anderson Cooper reportedly asked a parish president to bring an angry, unemployed offshore oil worker on his show. When the parish president could not promise the worker would be angry, both were disinvited. Keeping him honest. Anderson Cooper, who called it Obama's Katrina. Obama's Katrina is yet to come. Stand by when this new levy system is complete. Mm-mm. By the way, the Army Corps of Engineers was told by Congress in 2007 to uh, impanel a peer review group to study and review all of its planning and construction for the new system in New Orleans. That group has been impaneled last year, held its first meeting in November after all the design and most of the construction were completed. Building strong. Back to the oil spill report. There's a 43-page chapter that suggests that berms and boom were pretty much a failure, collecting more headlines than oil. You heard on this program about the shortcomings of boom. Berms were the favored solution of Governor Bobby Jindal and Plaquemine Parish President Billy Nungesser. Garrett Graves, Governor Jindal's top advisors on coast, uh, advisor on coastal issues, said the commission's report showed contempt for the Cajun ingenuity that was the real saving grace in the disaster. The commission did call on Congress to create an independent safety agency to oversee oil drilling, raise the $75 million oil spill liability ceiling, and dedicate 80% of any Clean Water Act penalties paid by BP to restoring the Gulf Coast. But who gained the most from the whole deal? Maybe BP. This happened this week, ladies and gentlemen. A Russian minister said BP's experience in cleaning up the Gulf of Mexico oil spill was one of the reasons Russia chose the British oil firm. Imagine that. BP's British, according to the Russians. Huh. To help develop its fragile Arctic oil fields. BP and Russia's state-controlled oil company agreed this week to a multi-billion dollar deal under which they'll jointly explore for offshore oil in a deal that gives BP access to areas of the Arctic previously reserved for Russian firms. They've gained a great deal of experience in the Gulf of Mexico cleanup operation, said the 
chairman of the Russian firm, asked, when asked why BP was chosen. BP, he said, has learned from this experience. BP's new chief, Bob Dudley, compare this with some statements Bob Dudley has made in the recent past, ladies and gentlemen, about BP and its role. Quote, now, in Russia, he says, To be honest, we've learned a lot about what happened in the Gulf of Mexico. It has shaken the company to the core. We are going to have renewed focus on safety and risk management. Unquote. Bob Dudley. Congratulations, BP. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. And perhaps most importantly, it is the one-year anniversary of the murder of 11 men and the, I'm not sure murder is quite the right word, but something awful close to it, of one of the uh, biologically richest and diverse and healthiest and vital parts of the American coastline, the uh, manslaughter, perhaps, except it's not man, uh, ecocide is probably a decent word, of the, of the, uh, of the Gulf Coast. Dar Jamail is with us. D-A-H-R-J-A-M-A-I-L dot org is his website. He's been following this story from the very beginning. He's been on our program a number of times. Dar, welcome back. Good to be with you, Tom. It's, it's always great to have you on. You are so good in your reporting. Uh, your latest article, uh, BP's Criminal Negligence Exposed. I'm assuming there's a link to it at darjamail.org? Actually, it's up on english.aljazeera.net right now. Okay, great. English.aljazeera.net. Okay, great. And uh, tell us about the the Gulf a year later. Well, the Gulf is uh, it's a disaster zone. The four main states uh, most heavily affected by this disaster that started uh, one year ago today, that would be Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida, uh, are still suffering uh, human health impact, uh, marine and biological health impact, and, and severe economic impact from these. Uh, meanwhile, we have uh, BP paid uh, Kenneth Feinberg, the so-called independent uh, uh, administrator of the GCCF, uh, the $20 billion compensation fund, has paid out to date uh, less than $4 billion of the so-called $20 billion compensation fund course, we have to remember that it was just the end of last December that Feinberg boasted on Bloomberg News that he expected to not have to pay out more than half of that fund, therefore saving BP, his employer, who pays him and his firm $1 million a month to so-called administer this fund, uh, he's going to be saving them a good chunk of that money. $10 billion. Didn't BP right. just get a $10 billion tax uh, write-down because of their expenses on cleanup? 
Well, exactly, and that's how they're doing it. In fact, I've seen some reports that show BP could well, if they play their books the right way on this, they could actually profit from this disaster. Wow. By gaming the tax code so that basically you and I and every other taxpayer in America pays for the cleanup. Exactly. Of course, coupled with the uh, continued increasing uh, price of oil, which, of course, is, is helping them very much. But we're seeing right. uh, continued devastation. I, I think some of the key points of this story as we go into the future are we're facing a decades-long impact and recovery period on the, the ecosystems of the Gulf, uh, as you mentioned, which are uh, ext- were, anyway, an extremely uh, biologically rich area. Uh, much of our fishing, uh, shrimp, and oyster production for the United States I would say comes, but I would say now came from that area, uh, that's going to be severely impacted in the human health crisis where we're literally seeing deaths that are already being directly attributed to chemical toxification from BP's disaster. For example? Uh, for example, uh, I, I did a piece not too long ago. Of, uh, I interviewed a man named Stephen Aguanaga from Louisiana, and he and his friend Merrick Belain went swimming in July off the coast of Florida and dove under the water and came up both covered in this kind of orangey, slick, chemical substance, uh, and then immediately started feeling lousy. Uh, to date, Stephen's been, uh, had his blood tested. He has such high levels of the chemicals uh, in his blood, all directly attributed to uh, BP's crude oil and dispersants used to sink it. Uh, such high levels, the doctor basically was wondering how he managed to actually walk into the office. And exactly one month after the day they were exposed to these chemicals, his friend Merrick, drop dead. This is, of course, the first year anniversary of the BP oil uh, disaster. Obviously, there was an explosion, killed 11 people, and then uh, the worst environmental uh, oil spill of our, uh, not just our lifetime, but uh, in United States history, of course. Uh, And since then, what has happened? Well, apparently nothing. There was an oil spill commission. They uh, suggested that we do comprehensive energy policy, improve safety, and protect the environment. So far, of all their suggestions, uh, absolutely none of them have been implemented. Zero. Uh, when uh, you talk about uh, liability for these kind of spills, because we saw it creates tremendous uh, liability, and if somebody, if the companies don't pay for it, we pay for it, right? Well, have they removed the cap on liability of just $75 million? Nope, they have not removed it. So if one of the smaller companies, and there are about half a dozen small companies who do drill, relatively small, obviously, in the Gulf of Mexico, if they had a disaster like BP, they couldn't pay for it. And they just simply declare bankruptcy and go, sad day for you. I have a $75 million cap on liability, and I'm done. Now the American taxpayer pays for the rest of it. Privatize the gains, socialize the losses. That's how it works. So did that get fixed? Nope. Uh, how about... Uh, the idea of uh, introducing legislation. Well, the Democrats did introduce some legislation. Of course, it was filibustered and killed in the Senate by the Republicans. But don't worry, now that the Republicans are in office, uh, they have introduced three pieces of legislation 
Putting the Gulf Back to Work Act, Restarting American Offshore Leasing Now Act, and Reversing President Obama's Offshore Moratorium Act. Every single one of those removes regulation, does not add regulation or protection. Apparently they think we had too much protection, too much regulation uh, of the oil industry, and that we would be better off if we remove that regulation and let them drill without any safety precautions. Not without any, but with less safety precautions. Now, we already had those safety precautions, and they proved obviously not ample enough. Republicans don't give a damn. They want more drilling. In fact, the president has already authorized 10 more deep water drilling uh, expeditions in the Gulf of Mexico, and 46 shallow water uh, expeditions. Uh, and uh, those wells are going to continue straight ahead. Okay. Now, I said uh, back when the president came out a little over a year ago and said that he would expand offshore drilling. What did I tell him? As I tell, say all the time, don't agree with the Republicans. They will use it against you. And certainly you shouldn't agree with the Republicans unless you get something back. These preemptive concessions are a disastrous idea. And three weeks after the president announced it, we had the explosion on Deepwater Horizon by BP, Transocean, etc. Now, just in case you don't believe me that I said that, let's go to the videotape. This is after the president made his announcement, three weeks before the BP disaster. Uh, let's watch clip number five. And what he's decided to do is that he's going to open up offshore areas to oil drilling. So opening up large chunks of the Atlantic coastline, the eastern Gulf of Mexico, and the north coast of Alaska to oil and natural gas drilling. Genius move. Now, why is this a terrible idea? And then I went on to explain why it was a terrible idea. And remember, that was three weeks before the BP disaster. Okay? Now, in another part of that explanation, here's why I explain why you shouldn't compromise. Clip number six. Why do I think it's a terrible idea, then? Because this is not the second or third compromise. This is the 128th compromise in a row. It's weeks of weakness. That's how Obama enters every single debate. Now, remember, that was over a year ago. And since then, what's happened? Obama has compromised on tax cuts. In fact, it wasn't a compromise. He gave them exactly what they wanted in tax cuts. And now you see Michelle Bachman saying, oh, we didn't want the tax cuts. Obama wanted the tax cuts for the rich. So they did offshore drilling. Obama's decision was to go offshore drilling. He's at fault for BP. But, by the way, we'd still like to do more offshore drilling. And why is that a bad idea? I continue to explain. Clip number seven. But this is the main thing they wanted. Why would you give this up? at the beginning of the process. It's crazy. The environmentalists and some uh, journalists are saying baffling, shocking. Why? <laughs> Somebody wrote, what am I missing here? Well, it turns out we weren't missing anything. We were right. The Obama administration was wrong. Now, so when I tell you that, you know, I'm afraid how these next budget negotiations are going to go, it's based on an enormous a vast treasure of experience that we've unfortunately gotten with the Obama administration. Whether it was the offshore drilling or it was those tax cuts or it was the latest budget negotiations where the Republicans initially asked for $32 billion and then got $38.5 billion worth of cuts. It happens every single time. Has the president finally learned his lesson? Who knows? And is this really about lessons? Probably not. Okay. The reality is 
these guys, these oil companies, spend a tremendous amount of money lobbying our politicians. Now, yes, it mainly goes to Republicans, but it definitely goes to Democrats like Mary Landrieu as well. But let me give you the overall numbers. The oil and gas industry spent $146 million lobbying Capitol Hill. That was just in 2010, one year. And that's not all. They also spent $28 million directly on federal campaigns. And that's according to the Center for Responsive Politics. So why do we have these policies that make no sense, that after a gigantic disaster like BP, we actually loosen regulations? And you know what you need right now, uh, if uh, there's a blowout, what we're, what's supposed to protect us? The same blowout preventers that didn't work the last time. In fact, there are great scientific evidence that they have a design flaw and that they don't work over half the time. And when they asked Ken Salazar, the Interior Secretary for uh, the Obama administration, hey, you're giving away all these new drilling permits. You're letting them drill. Have we fixed anything? And can we, you know, make sure that this won't happen again? He said, well, it's a work in progress. That means, hell no, we didn't fix it. And if it blows up, the same exact thing is going to happen. Because our politicians get greased. By the way, BP is back to donating. Before they took a little moratorium, they're like, oh, let's take it easy for a little while. Now they're right back in the game. And who are they giving to? In this case, exclusive to, to Republicans. Speaker John Boehner gets a check. House Majority Whip Kevin McCarthy gets a check. Um, National Republican Congressional Committee gets a check. National Republican Senatorial Committee gets a check. Fred Upton, who was, is the head of the Energy Committee, got a check. But to be fair to Fred Upton, he actually returned it. Whoa, well, you look at that. He thought, and by the way, he takes an enormous amount of money from the Koch brothers and all the other energy and, and oil and gas industries. He just was smart enough to say, BP, well, that's probably not smart taking it. But the rest of them were like, give me, give me, give me, give me. Boehner's like, yeah, of course I'll take BP's money. We do their bidding anyway. We might as well get paid for it. And in fact, the National Republican Senatorial Committee's spokesperson, Brian Walsh, was the most uh, honest about it. He said, quote, we appreciate the support of all of our donors. I bet you do. And that's why BP's back in business. And in fact, the first uh, permit given out was to a company half-owned by BP after the moratorium was lifted. So they're right back to doing exactly what they were doing before with no real changes, no real fixes. So if there's another accident, there'll be another disaster. Welcome to America. Hey, Jay, uh, Chris the Carpenter here, uh, Cape Cod. Listen to the 516 show. I'm sitting at my desk. Uh, this is the show with the two pretty heavy-duty voicemails at the end. And uh, I had kind of a moment of clarity. Um, I had a, a pretty tremendous emotional response to, to hearing those stories. Uh, I'm still a little shaky right now. and But, but moreover, I, I had to think about the fact that these were people I've never met living elsewhere in the world sending digital voicemails in ones and zeros that get bounced off of satellites and end up in your magical email and get edited into this, this, this media file called a podcast that 
then gets bounced off of satellites into the magical internet tubes and then eventually ends up on this magic window the size of a book of matches that fits in my pocket and entertains me all day. I backpacked India. I've seen leprosy. I've seen a disease which is extremely, extremely cheap to fix and isn't. And now we have people that live in magical windows and bring us our news. If you ever get a chance, there's a comedian named Louis C.K. and he does a, a bit called Everything's Amazing and No One's Happy. Throw that in. It's a good one. We don't have it too terribly bad. There's a lot of bad stuff in the world. Life isn't all that bad most of the time. Thanks for listening, everyone. And thanks to Chris the Carpenter for calling in with that great message. Uh, Chris is an extremely long-time listener and all-around great guy. You know, last I heard, you know, four years ago, there was a standing offer for me to come visit him up, up in uh, beautiful Cape Cod. And uh, you know, I should really take advantage of that one day. But um, I'm, I'm holding off on playing other voicemails today because I'm actually going to take him up on his offer and and play that segment from Louis C.K. that he was referencing. This is something that I had heard before, had become an instant fan of when I did, uh, loved the philosophy uh, behind it before I heard it, but then you know he he puts it together in a in a great and, and funny way, and it's the sort of thing that you find yourself, at least I find myself, quoting to other people pretty regularly after you hear it. So I, I would love to play that for you guys, and uh, so I'm just going to thank a couple of members, close out the show, and then and then play that segment. So I want to thank Ashton C for signing up for his leftist uh, yearly membership back on February second, and Ashton is actually my favorite type of uh, of member because. His membership canceled for one reason or another. Uh, you know, probably his credit card expired and PayPal canceled it, or you know something happened. But then he signed back up later. So um, and that happens more often than you would think. The cancellations, I mean, the people signing back up, not so much. So for those who have their memberships canceled for one reason or another and then come back, uh, you got to love that. Uh, and then secondly, I want to thank uh, Sachivan K, who signed up for a uh, socialist yearly membership back on March 15th. And Sachivan is actually a personal friend of mine back uh, in D.C. and uh, and you know became a listener and a fan and supporter. So huge thanks to uh, Sachivan and Ashton and all of the members and donors who keep the show going. I couldn't do it without you guys. As always, of course, I ask every single one of you to help support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Word of mouth is really just about the only way uh, podcasts like this get any kind of advertising. So um, so it's really up to you guys to help spread the word and uh, grow the audience, which grows the support and makes this sort of show sustainable. You can stay tuned into the show between episodes and help spread the word online by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. You can donate your Twitter account to us at donateyouraccount.com slash best of the left. Of course, that's linked up on my website as well. For details on the show itself, including links to the original sources and the music used in this and every episode, all those links are always available in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thought now black and white, so Take you out in the open door
Those were simpler times, I think. I just feel like we may be going back to that, by the way. But uh, in a way, good, because when I read things like the foundations of capitalism are shattering, I'm like, maybe we need that. Maybe we need some time where we're walking around with a donkey with pots clanging on the sides. You, you think know? that would just bring us back to reality? Yeah, because everything is amazing right now, and nobody's happy. Like, in my lifetime, the changes in the world have been incredible. When I was a kid, we had a rotary phone. We had a phone that you had to stand next to, and you had to dial it. Yes. You don't, you don't realize how primitive, you're making sparks <laughs> in a phone, and you actually would hate people with zeros in their numbers, because it was more, it was right. like, oh, this guy's got two zeros, screw that guy, why do I want to, yeah. <laughs> And then if, you, if they called and you weren't home, the phone would just ring, lonely, by itself. And then if you wanted money, you had to go in the bank. For when yes. it was open for like three hours, you had to stay in line, write yourself a check like an idiot. And then when you ran out of money, you just go, well, I can't do any more things now. That's right. I can't do any more That's things. That's it, yeah. That was it. And even if you had a credit card, they, the guy would go, ugh, and he'd bring out this whole chunk chunk, and he'd write, yes. oh, you have to call the president to see if you have any money. And it's all true, kids. You had to call the president, yeah. It was ridiculous. Yes. Do you feel that we now, in the 21st century, we take technology for granted? Well, yeah, because now we live in an, in an amazing, amazing world, and it's wasted on the on the crappiest generation of just spoiled idiots that don't care because this is what people are like now. They got their phone and they're like, ugh, it won't... Give it a second! Give it, it's going to space! Can you give it a second to get back from space? Is the speed of light too slow for you? I was on a, I was on an airplane and there was internet high speed internet on the airplane. That's yes. the newest thing that I know exists. And I'm sitting on the plane and they go, "Open up your laptop. You can go on the internet." And it's fast. And I'm watching YouTube clips. It's I'm in an airplane, and then it breaks down. And they apologize. The internet's not working. The guy next to me goes, "This is bull." <laughs> like how quickly the world owes him something. Yes. He knew existed only 10 seconds ago. Right. Right. And on planes... Flying is the worst one because people come back from flights and they tell you their story. And it's like a horror story. It's they act like their flight was like a cattle car in the 40s in Germany. That's yeah. how bad they make it sound. Right. They're like, it was the worst day of my life. First of all, we didn't board for 20 minutes. And then we get on the plane and they made us sit there on the runway for 40 minutes. We had to sit there. Oh really, what happened next? Did you fly through the air incredibly like a bird? Did you partake in the miracle of human flight, you non-contributing zero that you got to fly? You're flying! It's amazing! Everybody on every plane should just constantly be going, oh my god! Wow! Yes! You're flying! You're, you're sitting in a chair in the sky. Yes! Yeah. Yeah. Now, Louis, but, but it doesn't it doesn't go back a lot. <laughs> <laughs>
and it's not really. You know, here's the thing. People like they say there's delays on flights. Delays yeah. really. New York to California in five hours. That used to take 30 years <laughs> to do that. And a bunch of you would die on the way there and have a baby. You'd be a whole different group of people by the time you got there. <laughs> now you watch a movie and you take a dump in your home. Yeah. Well, nicer way to say it than that, but yeah.